Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Well, I think the mythologist Joseph Campbell said it right, talking about the, the American poetry that he loved. He said, Walt Whitman on Long Island and Robinson Jeffers out on the California coast. Uh, those are the poles. And having read all of my favorite Robinson Jeffers poems, uh, in scattered episodes uh, since last November on this podcast. I'm combining all of them here. I believe there are 37 of them uh, for those who want to listen. It's kind of hard and strange to realize that uh, uh, you can put a cap on Robinson Jeffers, and in this case, the cap is that it's about an hour and 15 minutes Uh it seems impossible to me that uh, words of this power can be contained by uh, a length of time that seems to me fairly short. But uh, listening to the recordings I've made have only uh, renewed my love for him and made me want to record them all over again. Um, it's worth saying uh, briefly that uh, I mentioned Joseph Campbell just now, that I didn't come across Jeffers or learn about Jeffers in any class about poetry. It was uh, Joseph Campbell who clued me in on the power of Jeffers in one of his books, I believe, and uh, I think one of his lectures actually is where I heard the name first. And he admitted even then, I think this was a lecture in the 60s or the 70s, where he says, most people don't know the name Robinson Jeffers. But when I show them the poems and they read the lines, they say, yes, this is a poet. And uh, for some reason, um, a reason I'm not entirely sure of at the moment, uh, Jeffers has uh, fell out of favor he was famous for a while during his lifetime. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He uh, had a play on Broadway, an adaptation of uh, Euripides' Medea. But uh, in his late years and after his death, uh, he fell out of favor. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, he was as prophetic as Allen Ginsberg. He was as plain-spoken as any great poet you can think of. Uh, who can still speak plainly and make great poetry. He 
was awfully cynical and despaired and criticized America for being involved in World War II. And it's true that if you read his poetry as a whole, if you read his poetry collection by collection, his cynical outlook on humanity and uh, humanity's place in the world uh, can be overbearing and tiresome, and you can get sick of it. And that is why I especially think that uh, a collection of his 40 or 50 best short poems is probably the way to go with him, rather than reading his work uh, all at once in a huge gulp to read all of it. I don't think there's a need to read all of it. Uh, he didn't strive to be noticed or to be famous. He lived in his hand-built house out in Carmel, California, and seems to have ignored uh, the rat race, not just of uh, everyday uh, middle-class life, but of poet poetic life. He didn't, uh, um, just as uh, Robert Frost was making it fashionable, he didn't take a teaching job somewhere. I'm not aware of him uh, becoming a teacher or of becoming a reviewer or becoming a commenter on uh, the poetry of his contemporaries. Um, and it's so that it's just possible that all the things he didn't do combined with the kind of poetry that he wrote that wasn't modernist in any sense of the word of being uh, either intentionally or unintentionally difficult. Uh, he was elusive. He alluded to the Greeks and to biblical poetry, to the Norse poets, to so much poetry. But he did so in a way that was, as I said, plain spoken. Uh, you didn't need a dictionary next to you or uh, a reference book to read his poetry. And that kind of uh, poetry, I guess, just sort of fell out of favor. The quotation that I keep reading from Robert Lowell and his generation of poets, where you have uh, poets who are able to write a certain kind of difficult poem, a kind of uh, lyric poem that is heavy on technique, but um, uh, not very substantive in its humanity or in its feeling. Uh, that kind of poem, that kind of poetry, that kind of poet uh, seems to have gained favor at some point and in many ways and in a different form with different emphasis and uh, different interests, we could say, still uh, reigns today. So uh, those are some reasons. I would like to at some point read bits and pieces from James Carman's book, Robinson Jeffers, Poet of California, which is a small biography uh, published in the late 80s and I think updated after that, that might give some clue as to why Jeffers' status uh, seems uh, to have waned uh, before his death and, and since then. But in a way, and I think Jeffers would say it himself, uh, it really doesn't matter. He would prefer that, uh, if anything, we learn from his poetry not to read the poetry, but to live life in nature and live life in the world.
um, I did think it worthwhile to just read a small par biographical paragraph, and this comes from the Library of America uh, Anthology of American Poetry. They have great potted biographies in the back of their books. And this is what it says about Jeffers. Uh, born January 10th, 1887, died January 20th, 1962. It says, born John Robinson Jeffers near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And just as an aside, I am not aware of any plaque or monument to Jeffers here in Pittsburgh. Son of William Hamilton Jeffers, professor of Old Testament literature, and Annie Robinson Tuttle, church organist. Knew Latin and Greek by age 10. In 1898, entered first of five Swiss boarding schools. Entered the University of Pittsburgh in 1902. Studied German and French. Transferred to Occidental College in Los Angeles. While in graduate school at the University of Southern California, met Una Call Custer, a married literature student whom he began a long affair. Studied at University of Zurich, enrolled in USC Medical School in 1907, withdrew briefly to study forestry at the University of Washington. Privately published early poems in Flagons and Apples, 1912. Returned to Los Angeles, Custer's husband became aware of the affair and divorced her and she and Jeffers married in August 1913. Their daughter, born May 1914, died shortly after birth. The couple moved in September to Carmel, California. The poetry collection Californians published in 1916, and his twin sons were born the same year. Working with local masons, Jeffers built Stone Cottage called Tor House in Carmel overlooking the ocean. Continued to add to the house for many years, doing much of the work himself. Built a two-and-a-half-story stone tower dedicated to Una. Published his first mature collection, Tamar and Other Poems, in 1924, which interspersed short lyrics with long narrative poems. An expanded version as Roan Stallion, Tamar, and Other Poems, 1925, the book became a critical and popular success. Subsequently published The Women at Point Sur, 1927, Cawdor, 1928, Dear Judas, 1929, Descent to the Dead, 1931, Thurso's Landing, 1932, Give Your Heart to the Hawks, 1933, Solstice, 1935, Such Counsels You Gave Me, 1937, and Be Angry at the Sun, 1941. His adaptation of Euripides' Medea was produced on Broadway in 1947, and Jeffers' poems criticizing American involvement in World War II and attacking political leaders by name in his poetry prompted his publisher, Random House, to include a disclaimer in his 1948 collection, The Double Axe. Una, his wife, died in 1950. Hungerfield, his collection, appeared in 1954, and his final poems were collected in The Beginning and the End in 1963. 
that will give you a sense then of the life um, that he basically uh, just before the age of 30 uh, retreated to uh, Carmel, California and while he wrote and this is sort of like Whitman uh, while he wrote poetry before his 35th year he doesn't seem to have uh, come into his own or found his his voice until his 35th year just like Whitman or in his mid-30s and everything that I read here comes from poetry that he wrote between 19 that was published between 1924 and 1963 uh, speaking of modernism again I do remember one thing that James Carmen says in his biography is that uh, for all the pretense of knowing ancient Greek and Hebrew and uh, Latin of the modernists, especially of Eliot and Pound, even though Eliot and Pound did seem to know their stuff, uh, it's doubtful that a modernist poet knew those languages as well as Jeffers did himself. And it's wonderful <clears throat> to think of him alongside Whitman because they are, and to think of Jeffers as Whitman's true heir because uh, when they find their voice, the voice that they uh, write their poetry with for the rest of their lives, it is one voice. Uh, there is no Shakespeare. Uh, Jeffers and Whitman are not Shakespeare. They do not have many voices. They do not have characters. They have themselves or the pose, the pose of the poet that they have discovered. They have one voice that they find in their life and they run with it and it is a voice that uh, that they do not exhaust. But at the same time, especially since I had been thinking of Whitman and Shakespeare a lot lately, uh, Jeffers is alongside them in seeing poetry as basically an art of rhetoric, an art of performance. Because nobody would take Whitman's uh, happy poetry, uh, his uh, joyful exuberance, no one would take uh, Jeffers and his cynicism and his dour outlook on life or his nature poetry. No one would take Shakespeare and his potted plots that he stole from uh, lesser writers and lesser poets. Uh, no one would take any of this if the writing and the performance and the beauty of the language uh, were not there in the first place. Um, and I really come back to it. Uh, maybe if I read uh, Wallace Stevens again, or Hart Crane again, or William Carlos Williams again, uh, or even T.S. Eliot again, uh, I will come to see them differently. Uh, I don't think anyone tops four quartets some days, or uh, Allen Ginsberg's Kaddish, but as a lifelong preoccupation with a voice, um, I don't think Eliot wrote many good. Uh, he didn't uh, have 30 years of great poems. He had uh, three or four great poems every 10 years or so. Jeffers is someone that you can read uh, across a career, and it's astonishing to see that uh, the trajectory of his career is in reverse. It almost seems as if not almost, it does seem, that he got better as he got older. And if I do 
re-record these poems again, I will almost certainly read his later poems first and, uh, and read his uh, earliest poems last. Uh, he is an inexhaustible fount of, uh, of, of beauty, even if it is uh, the beauty of negativity. And so with that and with the itch to just reread it all again and re-record what I just said all again and to just uh, delve back into him again, here is the poetry that I love the best from Robinson Jeffers. The Excesses of God by Robinson Jeffers Is it not by his high superfluousness we know our God? For to equal a need is natural, animal, mineral. But to fling rainbows over the rain, and beauty above the moon, and secret rainbows on the domes of deep seashells, and make the necessary embrace of breeding beautiful, also is fire. Not even the weeds to multiply without blossom, nor the birds without music. There is the great humaneness at the heart of things, the extravagant kindness, the fountain humanity can understand, and would flow likewise if power and desire were perchmates. Age in Prospect by Robinson Jeffers Praise youth's hot blood, if you will. I think that happiness rather consists in having lived clear through youth and hot blood, on to the wintrier hemisphere, where one has time to wait and remember. Youth and hot blood are beautiful, so is peacefulness. Youth had some islands in it, but age is indeed an island and a peak. Age has infirmities, not few, but youth is all one fever. To look around and to love, in his appearances, though a little calmly, the universal God's beauty is better, I think, than to lip eagerly the mother's breast or another woman's. And there is no possession more sure than memories. But if I reach that gray island, that peak, my hope is still to possess with eyes that homeliness of ancient loves, oceans, and mountains, and meditate the sea-mouth of immortality, and the fountain six feet down with a quieter thirst than now I feel for old age a creature progressively thirsty for life, will be for death, too.
To the Rock That Will Be a Cornerstone of the House by Robinson Jeffers Old Garden of Grayish and Ochre Lichen How long a time since the brown people who have vanished from here built fires beside you and nestled by you out of the ranging sea wind. A hundred years, two hundred, you have been dissevered from humanity and only known the stubble squirrels and the headland rabbits or the long fetlocked plow horses breaking the hilltop in December, seagulls following, screaming in the black furrow. No one touched you with love. The gray hawk and the red hawk touched you where now my hand lies, so I have brought you wine and white milk and honey for the hundred years of famine and the hundred cold ages of sea wind. I did not dream the taste of wine could bind with granite, nor honey and milk please you, but sweetly they mingle down the storm-worn cracks among the mosses, interpenetrating the silent wing-prints of ancient weathers long at peace, and the older scars of primal fire, and the stone endurance that is waiting millions of years to carry a corner of the house, this also destined. Lend me the stone strength of the past, and I will lend you the wings of the future, for I have them. How dear you will be to me when I too grow old, old comrade. Point Joe by Robinson Jeffers Point Joe has teeth and has torn ships. It has fierce and solitary beauty. Walk there all day, you shall see nothing that will not make part of a poem. I saw the spars and planks of shipwreck on the rocks, and beyond the desolate sea meadows rose the warped, wind-bitten van of the pines, a fog-bank vaulted forest and all. The flat sea-meadows at that time of year were plated golden with a low flower called Footsteps of the Spring, millions of flowerets, whose light suffused upward into the fog flooded its vault. We wandered through a weird country where the light beat up from earthward and was golden. One other moved there, an old Chinaman gathering seaweed from the sea rocks. He brought it in his basket and spread it flat to dry on the edge of the meadow. Permanent things are what is needful in a poem, things temporarily of great dimension, things continually renewed or always present. Grass that is made each year equals the mountains in her past and future. Fashionable and momentary things we need not see nor speak of. Man gleaning food between the solemn presences of land and ocean, on shores where better men have shipwrecked, 
under fog and among flowers, equals the mountains in his past and future. That glow from the earth was only a trick of nature's. One must forgive nature a thousand graceful subtleties. Birds by Robinson Jeffers The fierce musical cries of a couple of sparrowhawks hunting in the headland, hovering and darting, their heads northwestward, prick like silver arrows shot through a curtain, the noise of the ocean trampling its granite. Their red backs gleam under my window around the stone corners. Nothing gracefuller, nothing nimbler in the wind. Westward the wavy gleaners, the old gray sea-going gulls are gathered together, the northwest wind wakening their wings to the wild spirals of the wind dance. Fresh as air, salt as the foam, play birds in the bright wind, fly falcons, forgetting the oak and the pine wood, come gulls from the Carmel sands and the sands at the river mouth, from Lobos and out of the limitless power of the mass of the sea. For a poem needs multitude, multitudes of thought, all fierce, all flesh-eaters, musically clamorous, bright hawks that hover and dart headlong, and ungainly gray hungers, fledged with desire of transgression, salt-slimed beaks from the sharp rock shores of the world and the secret waters. Boats in a Fog by Robinson Jeffers Sports and gallantries, the stage, the arts, the antics of dancers, the exuberant voices of music, have charm for children, but lack nobility. It is bitter earnestness that makes beauty. The mind knows, grown adult. A sudden fog drift muffled the ocean. A throbbing of engines moved in it at length, a stone's throw out between the rocks and the vapor. One by one moved shadows out of the mystery, shadows, fishing boats, trailing each other following the cliff for guidance, holding a difficult path between the peril of the sea fog and the foam on the shore granite. One by one, trailing their leader, six crept by me, out of the vapor and into it, the throb of their engines subdued by the fog, patient and cautious, coasting all round the peninsula, back to the buoys in Monterey Harbor. A flight of pelicans is nothing lovelier to look at. The flight of the planets is nothing nobler. All arts lose a virtue against the essential reality of creatures going about their business among the equally earnest elements of nature.
Joy by Robinson Jeffers Though joy is better than sorrow, joy is not great. Peace is great. Strength is great. Not for joy the stars burn. Not for joy the vulture spreads her gray sails on the air over the mountain. Not for joy the worn mountain stands, while years like water trench his long sides. I am neither mountain nor bird nor star, and I seek joy. The weakness of your breed, yet at length quietness will cover those wistful eyes. Postmortem by Robinson Jeffers Happy people die whole. They are all dissolved in a moment. They have had what they wanted, no hard gifts. The unhappy linger a space. But pain is a thing that is glad to be forgotten. But one who has given his heart to a cause, or a country, his ghost may spaniel it a while, disconsolate to watch it. I was wondering how long the spirit that sheds this verse will remain, when the nostrils are nipped, when the brain rots in its vault, or bubbles in the violence of fire, to be ash and metal. I was thinking some stalks of the wood whose roots I married to the earth of this place will stand five centuries. I held the roots in my hand, the stems of the trees between two fingers. How many remote generations of women will drink joy from men's loins, and dragged from between the thighs of what mothers will giggle at my ghost when it curses the axemen, gray impotent voice on the sea wind, when the last trunk falls. The women's abundance will have built roofs over all this foreland, will have buried the rock foundations I laid here. The women's exuberance will canker and fail in its time, and like clouds the houses unframe, the granite of the prime stand from the heaps. Come storm and wash clean, the plaster is all run to the sea and the steel all rusted. The foreland resumes the form we loved when we saw it. Though one at the end of the age, and far off from this place, should meet my presence in a poem, the ghost would not care but be here, long sunset shadow in the seams of the granite, and forgotten the flesh, a spirit for the stone. And I was going to post three poems from Robinson Jeffers' book, The Woman at Point Sur. I was going to post them separately, but I realized uh, they're fairly short, especially the these last two. This is a poem of his called The Pelicans. Four pelicans went over the house. 
sculled their worn oars over the courtyard. I saw that ungainliness magnifies the idea of strength. A lifting gale of seagulls followed them. Slim yachts of the element, natural growths of the sky. No wonder light wings to leave sea. But those grave weights toil and are powerful. And the wings torn with old storms remember that cone that the oldest redwood dropped from, the tilting of continents, the dinosaur's day, the lift of new sea lines, the omnisecular spirit keeps the old with the new also. Nothing at all has suffered erasure. There is life not of our time. He calls ungainly bodies as beautiful as the grace of horses. He is weary of nothing. He watches airplanes. He watches pelicans. And the third thing from Robinson Jeffers, The Women at Point Sur, is merely two lines from a longer poem called Credo, which I think would be perfect as an epigraph for something, for a million things, actually. This is from Credo. The beauty of things was born before eyes and sufficient to itself. The heartbreaking beauty will remain when there is no heart to break for it. This is a poem by Robinson Jeffers called Tor House, and it is about a house that he built, I believe, all by hand, uh, with the help of some others on the uh, West Coast, on, in Carmel, California. Uh, this is interesting in one way, because uh, Jung, uh, well, he didn't write any poetry about it, uh, he had uh, his own house. Uh, built on uh, Lake Zurich in the uh, village of Bollingen, uh, which became uh, famous in its own right. And I'm pretty sure that Yeats, again, while he didn't build it himself, uh, had his own house uh, perhaps in the vicinity of Lady Gregory, I'm not sure, uh, built for himself, and he did, I'm fairly certain, write a poem about that house. So there's uh, a nice pedigree for, for poems like these, uh, for where people like this live and uh, get their work done. This is Tor House by Robinson Jeffers. If you should look for this place after a handful of lifetimes, perhaps of my planted forest, if you may stand yet, dark-leaved Australians or the coast cypress, haggard with storm drift. But fire and axe are devils. Look for foundations of sea-worn granite. My fingers had the art to make stone love stone. 
you will find some remnant. But if you should look in your idleness after ten thousand years, it is the granite knoll on the granite, and the lava tongue in the midst of the bay, by the mouth of the Carmel River Valley, these four will remain in the change of names. You will know it by the wild sea fragrance of wind, though the ocean may have climbed or retired a little. You will know it by the valley inland that our sun and our moon were born from, before the poles changed. And Orion in December, evenings was strung in the throat of the valley like a lamp-lighted bridge. Come in the morning you will see white gulls weaving a dance over blue water, the wane of the moon their dance companion, a ghost walking by daylight, but wider and whiter than any bird in the world. My ghost you needn't look for. It is probably here, but a dark one, deep in the granite, not dancing on wind with the mad wings in the day moon. Here are six poems from Robinson Jeffers' 1928-29 collection, Dear Judas. The first poem is called Hooded Night. At night, toward dawn, all the lights of the shore have died, and a wind moves, moves in the dark the sleeping power of the ocean, no more beast-like than man-like not to be compared, itself and itself. Its breath-blown shoreward huddles the world with the fog. No stars dance in heaven, no ship's light glances. I see the heavy granite bodies of the rocks of the headland that were ancient here before Egypt had pyramids. Bulk on the gray of the sky, and beyond them the jets of young trees I planted, the year of the Versailles peace. But here is the final unridiculous peace. Before the first man, here were the stones, the ocean, the cypresses, and the pallid region in the stone-rough dome of fog where the moon falls on the west. Here is reality. The other is a spectral episode. After the inquisitive animal's amusements are quiet. The dark glory. And this is only four lines from a poem called Oshin's Grave. And it says... We dead have our peculiar pleasures of not doing, of not feeling, of not being. Enough has been felt, enough done, oh and surely, enough of humanity has been. 
and this is a poem called Antrim. Uh, I'm fairly certain that the the poems in the middle of Dear Judas were written after uh, Jeffers took a, a trip to Ireland, and this is the poem called Antrim. No spot of earth where men have so fiercely for ages of time fought and survived and cancelled each other, picked in Gale and Dane, Maquillian, Clandonal O'Neill, savages, the Scot, the Norman, the English, here in the narrow passage and the pitiless north, perpetual betrayals, relentless, resultless fighting, a random fury of dirks in the dark, a struggle for survival, of hungry, blind cells of life in the womb. But now the womb has grown old, her strength has gone forth, a few red carts in a fog creak flax to the dubs, and sheep in the high heather cry hungrily that life is hard, a plaintive piece, shepherds and peasants. We have felt the blades meet in the flesh in a hundred ambushes, and the groaning blood bubble in the throat. In a hundred battles the heavy axes bite the deep bone, the mountains suddenly stagger and be darkened. Generation on generation we have seen the blood of boys and heard the moaning of women massacred, the passionate flesh and nerves have flamed like pitch-pine, and fallen and lain in the earth softly dissolving. I have lain and been humbled in all these graves, and mixed new flesh with the old, and filled the hollow of my mouth with maggots and rotten dust and ages of repose. I lie here and plot, the agony of resurrection. And this is probably one of my favorite poems of Robinson Jeffers. It's called Inscription for a Gravestone. And if the listener or the reader gets tired quickly of uh, what Jeffers calls his inhuman philosophy, the belief that human beings are a disease on the earth, um, and you get sick of hearing him uh, make that point uh, so eloquently over and over and over again. Uh, Jeffers was not a poet who was afraid to repeat himself. Perhaps a poem like Inscription for a Gravestone uh, can show the beauty of that point of view, even if you uh, still don't quite agree with it. This is Inscription for a Gravestone. I am not dead. I have only become inhuman, that is to say, undressed myself of laughable prides and infirmities, but not as a man undresses to creep into bed, but like an athlete stripping for the race. The delicate ravel of nerves that made me a measurer of certain fictions called good and evil, that made me contract with pain and expand with pleasure, 
fussily adjusted like a little electroscope. That's gone, it's true. I never miss it. If the universe does, how easily replaced. But all the rest is heightened, widened, set free. I admired the beauty while I was human. Now I am part of the beauty. I wander in the air, being mostly gas and water, and flow in the ocean, touch you and Asia at the same moment, have a hand in the sunrises and the glow of this grass. I left the light precipitate of ashes to earth, for I love token. That is, that is one of the great poems. Two more here from Dear Judas. This is called Subjected Earth, and he is still uh, in England and Ireland, it appears. Uh, Subjected Earth. Walking in the flat Oxfordshire fields, where the eye can find no rock to rest on but little flints speckle the soil, and the million buried hedges tingle with birds at evening. I saw the somber November day redden and go down, a flight of lapwings whirled in the hollow of the field, and half-tame pheasants cried from the trees. I remembered impatiently how the long bronze mountain of my own coast, where color is no account and pathos ridiculed, the sculpture is all, breaks the arrows of the setting sun over the enormous mounded eyeball of ocean. The soft alien twilight, worn and weak with too much humanity, hooded my mind. Poor flourishing earth, meek smiling slave, if sometimes the swamps return and the heavy forest black beech and oak roots, break up the paving of London streets, and only as long before, on the lifted ridgeways, few people shivering by little fires, watch the night of the forest cover the land, and shiver to hear the wild dogs howling where the cities were. Would you be glad to be free? I think you will never be glad again, so needed with human flesh, so humbled and changed. Here all's downhill, and passively goes to the grave, asks only a pinch of pleasure between the darknesses, contented to think that everything has been done that's in the scope of the race. So should I also perhaps dream under the empty angel of this twilight. But the great memory of that unhumanized world, with all its wave of good and evil to climb yet, its exorbitant power to match, its heartless passion to equal, and all its music to make, beats on the grave mound. And the last poem here, still in England and Ireland, is called Second Best. A Celtic spearman 
forcing the chrome-like builder's brown daughter, a blonde Saxon, a slayer of Britons, building his farm outside the village he'd burned, a Norse voyager, wielder of oars and a sword, thridding the rocks at the fjord sea end, hungry as a hawk, a hungry galley, chiefling in Ulster, whose blood with the Norsemen's rotted in the rain on a heather hill. These, by the world's time, were very recent, forefathers of yours, and you are a maker of verses. The pallid pursuit of the world's beauty on paper, unless a tall angel comes to require it, is a pitiful pastime. If, burnished anew from God's eyes, an angel, and the ardors of the simple blood showing clearly a little ridiculous in this changed world. Write and be quiet. Here are six poems from about the middle section of Robinson Jeffers' career, written from about 1930 to 1947, and the first of them is called New Mexican Mountain. I watch the Indians dancing to help the young corn at Taos Pueblo. The old men squat in a ring and make the song, the young women with fat bare arms and a few shame-faced young men shuffle the dance. The lean, muscled young men are naked to the narrow loins, their breasts and backs daubed with white clay. Two eagle feathers plume the black heads. They dance with reluctance. They are growing civilized. The old men persuade them. Only the drum is confident. It thinks the world has not changed the beating heart, the simplest of rhythms. It thinks the world has not changed at all. It is only a dreamer, a brainless heart. The drum has no eyes. These tourists have eyes, the hundred watching the dance, white Americans, hungrily too, with reverence, not laughter. Pilgrims from civilization, anxiously seeking beauty, religion, poetry, Pilgrims from the vacuum. People from cities, anxious to be human again. Poor show how they suck you empty. The Indians are emptied, and certainly there was never religion enough, nor beauty, nor poetry here, to fill Americans. Only the drum is confident. It thinks the world has not changed. Apparently only myself and the strong tribal drum, and the rock head of Taos Mountain, remember that civilization is a transient sickness. And the next poem is called, Still the Mind Smiles. Still the mind smiles at its own rebellions, knowing all the while that civilization 
and the other evils that make humanity ridiculous remain beautiful in the whole fabric, excesses that balance each other like the paired wings of a flying bird. Misery and riches, civilization and squalid savagery, mass war and the odor of unmanly peace, tragic flourishes above and below the normal of life. In order to value this fretful time, it is necessary to remember our norm, the unaltered passions, the same-colored wings of imagination, that the crowd clips and lonely places new-grown, the unchanged lives of herdsmen and mountain farms, where men are few and few tools, a few weapons, and their dawns are beautiful. From here, for normal, one sees both ways, and listens to the splendor of God, the exact poet, the sonorous antistrophe of desolation to the strophe multitude. The next poem is called Nova. That Nova was a moderate star, like our good sun. It stored, no doubt, a little more than it spent, of heat and energy until the increasing tension came to the trigger point of a new chemistry. Then what was already flaming found a new manner of flaming ten thousandfold, more brightly for a brief time. What was a pinpoint fleck on a sensitive plate at the great telescope's eyepiece now shouts down the steep night to the naked eye, a nine-day superstar. It is likely our moderate father the sun will sometime put off his nature for a similar glory. The earth would share it. These tall green trees would become a moment's torches and vanish. The oceans would explode into invisible steam the ships and the great whales fall through them like flaming meteors into the emptied abysm. The six-mile hollows of the Pacific seabed might smoke for a moment. Then the earth would be like the pale, proud moon. Nothing but vitrified sand and rock would be left on earth. This is a probable death passion for the sun's planets. We have no knowledge to assure us. It may not happen at any moment of time. Meanwhile, the sun shines wisely and warm. Trees flutter green in the wind. Girls take their clothes off to bathe in the cold ocean or to hunt love. They stand laughing in the white foam. They have beautiful shoulders and thighs. They are beautiful animals. All life is beautiful. We cannot be sure of life. For one moment. We can, by force and self-discipline, by many refusals and a few assertions, in the teeth of fortune, assure ourselves freedom and integrity, and life, or integrity, and death. And we know that the enormous and vulnerable beauty of things is the face of God. To live gladly in its presence, 
and die without grief or fear, knowing it survives us. The next poem is called Contemplation of the Sword, April 1938. Reason will not decide at last. The sword will decide. The sword, an obsolete instrument of bronze or steel, formerly used to kill men, but here, in the sense of a symbol, the sword, that is, the storms and counterstorms of general destruction, killing of men, destruction of all goods and materials, massacre, more or less intentional, of children and women, destruction, poured down from winds, the air made accomplice, the innocent air perverted into assassin and poisoner. The sword, that is, treachery and cowardice, incredible baseness, incredible courage, loyalties, insanities, the sword, weeping and despair, mass enslavement, mass torture, frustration of all the hopes that starred man's forehead. Tyranny for freedom, horror for happiness, famine for bread, carrion for children. Reason will not decide, at least. The sword will decide. Dear God, who are the whole splendor of things and the sacred stars, but also the cruelty and greed, the treacheries and vileness, insanities and filth and anguish? Now that this thing comes near us again, I am finding it hard to praise you with a whole heart. I know what pain is, but pain can shine. I know what death is. I have sometimes longed for it, but cruelty and slavery and degradation, pestilence, filth, the pitifulness of men like little hurt birds and animals. If you were only waves beating rock, the wind and the iron-cored earth, the flaming, insolent wildness of sun and stars, with what a heart I could praise your beauty. You will not repent, nor cancel life, nor free man from anguish for many ages to come. You are the one that tortures himself to discover himself. I am one that watches you and discovers you, and praises you in little parables, idle or tragedy, beautiful, intolerable God. The sword, that is, I have two sons whom I love. They are twins. They were born in 1916, which seemed to us a dark year of a great war, and they are now of the age that war prefers. The firstborn is like his mother. He is so beautiful that persons I hardly know have stopped me on the street to speak of the grave beauty of the boy's face. The secondborn has strength for his beauty. When he strips for swimming, the hero's shoulders and wrestler loins make him seem clothed. The sword, that is, loathsome disfigurements, blindness, mutilation, 
locked lips of boys too proud to scream. Reason will not decide at last. The sword will decide. And the next poem is called Shiva. There is a hawk that is picking the birds out of our sky. She killed the pigeons of peace and security. She has taken honesty and confidence from nations and men. She is hunting the lonely heron of liberty. She loads the arts with nonsense. She is very cunning. Science with dreams and the state with powers to catch them at last. Nothing will escape her at last, flying nor running. This is the hawk that picks out the star's eyes. This is the only hunter that will ever catch the wild swan. The prey she will take last is the wild white swan of the beauty of things. Then she will be alone, pure destruction, achieved and supreme, empty darkness under the death tent wings. She will build a nest of the swan's bones and hatch a new brood, hang new heavens with new birds, all be renewed. And the last poem is called Original Sin. The man-brained and man-handed ground ape physically the most repulsive of all hot-blooded animals up to that time of the world. They had dug a pitfall and caught a mammoth, but how could their sticks and stones reach the life in that hide? They danced around the pit, shrieking with ape excitement, flinging sharp flints in vain, and the stench of their bodies stained the white air of dawn. But presently one of them remembered the yellow dancer, wood-eating fire that guards the cave mouth. He ran and fetched him, and others gathered sticks at the wood's edge. They made a blaze and pushed it into the pit, and they fed it high around the mired sides of their huge prey. They watched the long, hairy trunk waver over the stifle, trumpeting pain and they were happy. Meanwhile, the intense color and nobility of sunrise, rose and gold and amber, flowed up the sky. Wet rocks were shining, a little wind stirred the leaves of the forest and the marsh flag flowers. The soft valley between the low hills became as beautiful as the sky, while in its midst, hour after hour, the happy hunters roasted their living meat slowly to death. These are the people. This is the human dawn. As for me, I would rather be a worm and a wild apple than a son of man. But we are what we are, and we might remember not to hate any person, for all are vicious and not be astonished at any evil. All are deserved. 
and not fear death. It is the only way to be cleansed. Between 1948 and 1953, Robinson Jeffers wrote some of the most memorable poems that I know of, and I wanted to read a handful of them here. The first of them is called Animals. At dawn, a knot of sea lions lies off the shore, in the slow swell between the rock and the cliff, sharp flippers lifted, or great-eyed heads as they roll in the sea, bigger than draft horses and barking like dogs, their all-night song. It makes me wonder a little that life near kin to human, intelligent, hot-blooded, idle in singing, can float at ease in the ice-cold midwinter water. Then, yellow dawn colors the south. I think about the rapid and furious lives in the sun. They have little to do with ours. They have nothing to do with oxygen and salted water. They would look monstrous if we could see them. The beautiful, passionate bodies of living flame, bat-like, flapping and screaming, tortured with burning lust and acute awareness, that ride the storm tides of the great fire globe. They are animals, as we are. There are many other chemistries of animal life, besides the slow oxidation of carbohydrates and amino acids. And I, I still don't know of anyone who could get away with that last line other than Robinson Jeffers. The second poem is Time of Disturbance. The best is, in war or faction or ordinary vindictive life, not to take sides. Leave it for children and the emotional rabble of the streets to back their horse or support or brawler. But if you are forced into it, remember that good and evil are as common as air, and like air shared by the panting belligerents, the moral indignation that horsens orators is mostly a fool. Hold your nose and compromise. Keep a cold mind. Fight if needs must. Hate no one. Do as God does, or the tragic poets. They crush their man without hating him, their Lear or Hitler, and often save without love. As for these quarrels, they are like the moon, recurrent and fantastic. They have their beauty, but night's is better. It is better to be silent than make a noise. It is better to strike dead and strike often. It is better not to strike. The Beauty of Things To feel and speak the astonishing beauty of things, earth, stone, and water, beast, man and woman, sun, moon, stars, the bloodshot beauty of human nature, its thoughts, frenzies and passions, and unhuman nature, its towering reality, for man's half-dream. 
Man, you might say, is nature dreaming, but rock and water and sky are constant. To feel greatly and understand greatly and express greatly, the natural beauty is the sole business of poetry. The rest's diversion, those holy or noble sentiments, the intricate ideas, the love, lust, longing, reasons, but not the reason. The World's Wonders Being now three or four years more than sixty, I have seen strange things in my time. I have seen a merman standing waist-deep in the ocean off my rock shore, unmistakably human and unmistakably sea-beast. He submerged and never came up again while we stood watching. I do not know what he was, and I have no theory, but this was the least of wonders. I have seen the United States grow up the strongest and wealthiest of nations and swim in the wind over bankruptcy. I have seen Europe for 2,500 years, the crown of the world, become its beggar and cripple. I have seen my people fooled by ambitious men and a froth of sentiment waste themselves on three wars. None was required, all futile, all grandly victorious. A fourth is forming. I have seen the invention of human flight, a chief desire of man's dreaming heart for 10,000 years, and men have made of it the chief means of massacre. I have seen the far stars weighed and their distance measured, and the powers that make the atom put into service. For what? To kill. To kill half a million flies, men, I should say, at one slap. I have also seen doom. You can stand up and struggle or lie down and sleep. You are doomed as Oedipus. A man and a civilization grow old, grow fatally, as we say, ill. Courage and the will are bystanders. It is easy to know the beauty of inhuman things, sea, storm, and mountain. It is their soul and their meaning. Humanity has its lesser beauty, impure and painful. We have to harden our hearts to bear it. I have hardened my heart only a little. I have learned that happiness is important, but pain gives importance. The use of tragedy, Lear becomes as tall as the storm he crawls in, and a tortured Jew becomes God. The Old Stonemason Stones that rolled in the sea for a thousand years have climbed the cliff and stand stiff rank in the house walls. Hurricanes may spit his lungs out, they'll not be moved. They have become conservative. They remember the endless treacheries of ever sliding water and slimy ambushes along the shore. They'll never again give themselves to the tides and the dreams, the popular drift, the whirlpool progress, but stand steady on their hill, at bay, yes, but unbroken. 
I have much in common with these old rockheads. Old comrades, I too have escaped and stand. I have shared in my time the human illusions, the muddy foolishness and craving passions. But something thirty years ago pulled me out of the tide wash. I must not even pretend to be one of the people. I must stand here alone with open eyes, in the clear air growing old, watching with interest and only a little nausea, the cheating shepherds, this time of the demagogues and the docile people, the shifts of powers, and pitiless general wars that prepare the fall, but also the enormous unhuman beauty of things, rock, sea, and stars, foolproof and permanent, the birds like yachts in the air or beating like hearts along the water, the flares of sunset, the peaks of Point Lobos, and here at night the huge waves, my drunken quarrymen climbing the cliff, hewing out more stones for me to make my house. The old granite stones, those are my people. Hard heads and stiff wits but faithful, not fools, not chatterers. And the place where they stand today will stand also tomorrow. And this next poem is only a section uh, from a longer poem called Hungerfield. And this is about uh, the death of Robinson Jeffers' wife. It is possible that all these conditions of us are fixed points on the returning orbit of time and exist eternally. It is no good. Una has died, and I am left waiting for death, like a leafless tree waiting for the roots to rot and the trunk to fall. I never thought you would leave me, dear love. I knew you would die sometime. I should die first, but you have died. It is quite natural. Because you loved life, you must die first, and I, who never cared much, live on. Life is cheap these days. We have to compete with Asia. We are cheap as dust, and death is cheap, but not hers. It is a common thing. We die, we cease to exist, and our dear lovers fulfill themselves with sorrow and drunkenness. The court at midnight and the cups in the morning, or they go seeking a second love. But you and I are at least not ridiculous. September again. The gray grass, the gray sea, the ink-black trees with white-bellied night herons in them, brawling on the boughs at dusk, barking like dogs, and the awful loss. It is a year she has died, and I have lived for a long year on soft, rotten emotions, vain longing and drunken pity, grief and gray ashes, O oh, child of God. It is not that I am lonely for you. I am lonely, I am mutilated, for you are part of me, but men endure that. I am growing old and my love is gone. No doubt I can live without you, bitterly and well. That's not the cry. My torment is memory, my grief to have seen the banner and beauty of your brave life dragged in the dust down the dim road to death, to have seen you defeated, you who never despaired passing through weakness and pain. 
to nothing. It is usual, I believe. I stood by. I believe I never failed you. The contemptible thought, whether I failed or not, I am not the one. I was not dying. Is death bitter, my dearest? It is nothing. It is a silence. But dying can be bitter. In this black year, I have thought often of Hungerfield, the man at Horse Creek who fought with death. Bodily, said the witness, throat for throat, fury against fury in the dark, and conquered him. If I had the courage and the hope, or the pure rage, I should now be death's captive, no doubt, not conqueror. I should be with my dearest, in the hollow darkness, where nothing hurts. I should not remember your silver-backed hand mirror you asked me for, and sat up in bed to gaze in it, to see your face a little changed. You were still beautiful, but not as you'd been a falcon. You said nothing. You sighed and laid down the glass, and I made a dog smile over a tearing heart, saying that you looked well. The lies, the faithless, hopeless, unbelieved lies, while you lay dying. For these reasons, I wish to make verses again, to drug memory, to make it sleep for a moment. Never fear, I shall not forget you until I am with you. The dead indeed forget all things, and when I speak to you it is only play-acting and self-indulgence. You cannot hear me. You do not exist, dearest. And this is called De Rerum Virtut. Here is the skull of a man. A man's thoughts and emotions have moved under the thin bone vault like clouds under the blue one. Love and desire and pain, thunder clouds of wrath and white gales of fear have hung inside here. And sometimes the curious desire of knowing values and purpose and the causes of things has coasted like a little observer airplane over the images that filled this mind. It never discovered much, and now all's empty, a bone bubble, a blown-out eggshell. That's what it's like, for the egg too has a mind, doing what our able chemists will never do, building the body of a hatchling, choosing among the proteins. These for the young wing muscles, these for the great crystalline eyes, these for the flighty nerves and brain, choosing and forming a limited but superhuman intelligence, prophetic of the future and aware of the past. The hawk's egg will make a hawk, and the serpent's a gliding serpent, but each with a little difference from its ancestors, and slowly, if it works, the race forms a new race. That also is a part of the plan within the egg. I believe the first living cell had echoes of the future in it, and felt direction and the great animals, the deep green forest and whales track sea. I believe this globed earth, not all by chance and fortune, brings forth her broods, but feels and chooses. 
and the galaxy, the fire wheel on which we are pinned, the whirlwind of stars in which our sun is one dust grain, one electron, this giant atom of the universe is not blind force, but fulfills its life and intends its courses. All things are full of God, winter and summer, day and night, war and peace are God. Thus the thing stands. The labor and the games go on. What for? What for? Am I a God that I should know? Men live in peace and happiness. Men live in horror and die howling. Do you think the blithe sun is ignorant, that black waste and beggarly blindness trail him like hounds and will have him at last? He will be strangled among his dead satellites, remembering magnificence. I stand on a cliff at Silvernace Creek mouth. Westward, beyond the raging water and the bent shoulder of the world, the bitter, futile war in Korea proceeds, like an idiot prophesying. It is too hot in mind for anyone, except God, perhaps, to see beauty in it. Indeed, it is hard to see beauty in any of the acts of men. But that means the acts of a sick microbe on a satellite of a dust grain twirled in a whirlwind in a world of stars. Something, perhaps, may come of him. In any event, he can't last long. Well, I am short of patience since my wife died. And this era of spite and hate-filled half-worlds gets to the bone. I believe that man is too beautiful, but it is hard to see and wrapped up in falsehoods. Michelangelo and the Greek sculptors, how they flattered the race. Homer and Shakespeare, how they flattered the race. One light is left us, the beauty of things, not men, the immense beauty of the world, not the human world. Look, and without imagination, desire, nor dream, directly at the mountains and sea. Are they not beautiful? these plunging promontories and flame-shaped peaks, stopping the somber, stupendous glory, the storm-fed ocean. Look at the Lobos rocks off the shore, with foam flying at their flanks and the long sea lions couching on them. Look at the gulls on the cliff wind and the soaring hawk under the cloud stream. But in the sagebrush desert, all one sun-stricken color of dust or in the reeking tropical rainforest, or in the intolerant north and high thrones of ice, is the earth not beautiful, nor the great skies over the earth? The beauty of things means virtue and value in them. It is, the, it is in the beholder's eye, not the world, certainly. It is the human mind's translation of the transhuman intrinsic glory it means that the world is sound, whatever the sick microbe does. But he, too, is part of it. And the last poem, The Deer Lay Down Their Bones. I followed the narrow cliffside trail halfway up the mountain, 
above the deep river canyon. There was a little cataract across the path, flinging itself over tree roots and rocks, shaking the jeweled fern fronds, bright bubbling water pure from the mountain. But a bad smell came up. Wondering at it, I clambered down the steep stream some forty feet, and found in the midst of bush oak and laurel, hung like a bird's nest on the precipice brink, a small hidden clearing, grass and a shallow pool. But all about there were bones lying in the grass, clean bones and stinking bones, antlers and bones. I understood that the place was a refuge for wounded deer. There are so many hurt ones, escape the hunters, and limp away to lie hidden. Here they have water for the awful thirst and peace to die in. Dense green laurel and grim cliff make sanctuary, and a sweet wind blows upward from the deep gorge. I wish my bones were with theirs. But that's a foolish thing to confess, and a little cowardly. We know that life is, on the whole, quite equally good and bad, mostly gray-neutral, and can be endured to the dim end, no matter what magic of grass, water, and precipice, and pain of wounds, makes death look dear. We have been given life and have used it. Not a great gift, perhaps, but in honesty should use it all. Mine's empty since my love died. Empty, the flame-haired grandchild with great blue eyes that look like hers. What can I do for the child? I gaze at her and wonder what sort of man and the fall of the world. I am growing old. That is the trouble. My children and little grandchildren will find their way. And why should I wait ten years yet, having lived sixty-seven, ten years more or less, before I crawl out on a ledge of rock and die snapping like a wolf who has lost his mate? I am bound by my own thirty-year-old decision. Who drinks the wine should take the dregs. Even in the bitter lees and sediment, new discovery may lie. The deer in that beautiful place lay down their bones. I must wear mine. At the height of his fame in the 1930s, the American poet Robinson Jeffers made the cover of Time magazine, but uh, since then he has become merely a provincial poet, mostly forgotten. He is a California poet, or an environmental poet. Uh, this has always struck me as kind of a shame, because uh, for all of the possible candidates of the true heir to Walt Whitman and his effortless rolling long, free-verse lines. I don't think any of them really compare to Robinson Jeffers. Um, but I can understand why he's no longer popular, uh, or nearly as popular as Whitman, uh, because Jeffers is such a grumpy prophet compared to Walt Whitman's positive exuberance and uh, optimism. 
uh, all you would have to do is compare the patriotic poetry of Whitman during the Civil War to Jeffers' just scathing poetry against uh, the United States' involvement in World War II. And especially when you consider that uh, and you read the poetry concerned with World War II, you realize that you don't have to agree with him, and I certainly don't, to enjoy the power of the poetry. Uh, none of the poems that I'm going to read here are involved with that. All of these come from his last book of poetry, and but you can still get a sense of his uh, cynicism with humanity, but also the beauty that he finds in it as well. The first poem is called Explosion. There are astronomers, mathematicians, men of science, who believe that the whole stellar universe, the Earth and other planets, the Sun and his galaxy, and the innumerable firefly millions of the other star swirls, and the unseen dark stars, dust clouds, and coal sacks, were once one giant atom, which under its own exaggerations of heat and pressure, exploded. The farthest galaxies that the telescope sees, according to their light analyzed, fly at incredible speeds outward through space, flung from that fury. Ours is among the laggards. Ours lay near the center, perhaps, of the blast. The idea is at least dynamic, might be held to explain our awful interest in atom splitting and nuclear bombs. We build a civilization and explode it, quite natural. Nature did worse before. We are born of explosion and homesick for it. Our little blasts echo that huge one. But the whole sum of the energies that made and contained the giant atom survives. It will gather again and pile up the power and the glory, and no doubt it will burst again. Systole to diastole, the whole universe beats like a heart. Peace in our time was never one of God's promises, but back and forth, die and live, burn and be damned. The great heart beating, pumping into our arteries his terrible life. He is beautiful beyond belief, and we, God's apes, or tragic children, share in the beauty. We see it above our torment. That's what life's for. He is no god of love, no justicer of a little city like Dante's Florence, no anthropoid god making commandments. This is the god who does not care and will never cease. Look at the seas there, flashing against this rock in the darkness. Look at the tide stream stars and the fall of nations and dawn wandering with wet white feet down the Carmel Valley to meet the sea. These are real, and we see their beauty. The great explosion is probably only a metaphor, I know not, of faceless violence, the root of all things. And this is one of my favorite poems of his, called A Vulture. I had walked since dawn, and lay down to rest on a bare hillside above the ocean. I saw through half-shut eyelids a vulture wheeling high up in heaven, and presently it passed again, but lower and nearer, its orbit narrowing. I understood then, 
that I was under inspection. I lay death still and heard the flight feathers whistle above me and make their circle and come nearer. I could see the naked red head between the great wings, beak downward staring. I said, My dear bird, we are wasting time here. These old bones will still work. They are not for you. But how beautiful he'd looked, gliding down on those great sails. How beautiful he looked, veering away in the sea light over the precipice. I tell you solemnly that I was sorry to have disappointed him, to be eaten by that beak and become part of him, to share those wings and those eyes, what a sublime end of one's body, what an ensconcement, what a life after death. And this poem is called The Polar Ice Caps Are Melting. Sort of a premonition of 2020. The polar ice caps are melting. The mountain glaciers drip into rivers. All feed the ocean. Tides ebb and flow, but every year a little bit higher. They will drown New York. They will drown London. And this place, where I have planted trees and built a stone house, will be under sea. The poor trees will perish, and little fish will flicker in and out of the windows. I built it well, thick walls of Portland cement and gray granite. The tower, at least, will hold against the sea's buffeting. It will become geological, fossil, and permanent. What a pleasure it is to mix one's mind with geological time, or with astronomical, relax it. There is nothing like astronomy to pull the stuff out of man, his stupid dreams and red rooster importance. Let him count the star swirls. That's all of these actually are great examples of how you don't need to agree with his conclusions to see the power and the beauty of the poetry. And uh, these last three are about uh, him growing old. This is called As the Eye Fails Through Age or Disease. As the eye fails through age or disease, and the world grows a little dark, it begins to have human figures in it. A stone on the mountain has a man's face. A storm-warped tree against the fog on the mountain is a man running, hopelessly fleeing his fear. And at night, by candlelight, a huddle of bedclothes on the bed is visibly a woman dying, that dearest woman who has been dead for ten years. The eye's tricks are strange. The mind has to be quick and resolute, or you'll believe them, and be gabbling with ghosts. For take note that they are always human. To see the human figure in all things is man's disease. To see the inhuman God is our health. And this one called, It Nearly Cancels My Fear of Death. It nearly cancels my fear of death, my dearest said, when I think of cremation. To rot in the earth is a loathsome end, but to roar up in flame, besides I am used to it, I have flamed with love or fury so often in my life, no wonder my body is tired, no wonder it is dying. We had great joys of my body. 
scatter the ashes. And this very last poem in his edition of Collected Poems, I am 74 years old and suddenly all my strength. I am 74 years old and suddenly all my strength has been shed on the wind. I cannot lift stones nor climb mountains nor make love. My dearest is dead nor swim a shark's smile in the blue ocean. It is very unpleasant and humiliating. I believe that it comes to all men unless they die. But I am too tough to die, though I thoroughly desire it. And I sort of regret now that the first recording of Robinson Jeffers' poetry comes from the end of his life, because you hear all of his themes here, and you hear uh, about the death of his wife, um, which prompted many gorgeous poems that I'll hopefully read in the future. But for now, I'll leave him there. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.